Tonight I want to close out this time of teaching on prayer. And then next week, Matt and Melanie will be sharing with us about Bolivia. They were there. Has it been a month yet? Not Right at a month now. So they've had a month to debrief. Um, and it takes that long to debrief and collect all the pictures and put slideshows together and think through things and pray through things. And so next week we'll hear from Matt and Melanie. Um, and then uh, from that point forward... Um, I'm talking to Paul and Matt both about October and November taking over Wednesday nights and having some different kind of teachings and leading. And uh, it, it'll, it'll benefit my soul, right? It'll, it'll benefit yours, and it'll be a good time as we end this year on Wednesday nights. But tonight I want to focus on when we think about prayer, we cannot end without thinking about how Jesus, our Savior, taught us to pray. Jesus taught about prayer, not just in Matthew chapter 6, where we will be tonight, but Jesus taught about prayer by living it. Can we say amen? His whole life, his whole ministry was centered around prayer. And I want us to look at this tonight. If we want to know how to pray, yes, all the different forms of prayer and, and different focuses of prayer that we have looked at over these last couple of months, three months really, it all culminates in what Jesus teaches us here. And so before we begin, let, let, let us pray together. Father God, we thank you for prayer. It's not something that we have manufactured as a ritual. It is something, dear God, that you have given us as a gift. You've given us the gift of prayer so that we come into your loving presence. It's whenever we are in prayer, Father, there is this intimate connection between us, between you and us and us and you. And Lord, that is your design. And it is something that is beyond our logical comprehension, but still there is something to it that we, we can study and grasp and tangibly think about. And all of that is beautiful, Lord. There are times when we pray, Father, we don't have to say a word. And that sometimes is the most intimate time with you. But as we are praying, God, your son Jesus showed us the focus, showed us an order of how to think in prayer, how to speak in prayer, how to have a spiritual attitude of prayer. And so, God, tonight I pray that you would open our hearts to, to glean from your word, but then teach us, dear Lord, what it means to pray. And I pray, God, that you would hear us and that we would hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Matthew chapter 6 is the, is the, 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 the go-to passage for the Lord's Prayer. In, in my childhood growing up in the Baptist church that I grew up in in Kingsport, Tennessee, it was part of our Sunday morning worship. It was part of, we, we stood together and, and recited this the Lord's Prayer. It was, it was every Sunday. It was, it was in the tradition of the Southern Baptist Church I was in. We, of course, we, we, had the, uh, we had the version where, and forgive us our trespasses as we also have forgiven those who trespass against us. And I have yet to find that in any translation. I've looked in the King James. It's, the King James says debtors. Uh, the ESV that I have says debtors. I don't know where that translation of trespassing came from. That was, so from my memory, from my memorization of Scripture, uh, what's that? Oh. The, the trespasses in my 
In your ESV? Well, I've got the ES. Yeah, I've got the ESV here too. And really? So there's different editions of the ESV. The paperback edition in the back has trespasses. My book, my edition up here says debtors. English standard. Okay. Yes. No, no, that's fine. So what I'm saying, what I'm saying. Whenever we think about this Lord's Prayer, there are several different traditions, and and part of the reason that we do that is because the Lord's Prayer has over the time, over Christian history become almost part of liturgy. It has become a liturgical form of prayer. And I want us to look in, in the Gospel of Matthew here of the original intent here of Jesus' teaching. He did not give us this prayer to be a form of liturgy. Okay? He gave us this prayer as a framework for how we approach God. That's what I want us to look at it. One thing to think about here is, let's think about the, well, let's go ahead and read it. Let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father, y'all want to read it together? Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then we would always close out uh, with, and, and deliver us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom for. Power and glory forever and ever, right? Um, so again, th- we, this prayer has become part of a liturgical tradition. Nothing, I mean, I, I really hold dear to some of those memories because it was some of the earliest memories of memorizing God's Word. But we, when we study scriptures, we can see that over history and over time, things have been added to, but I don't think it's a negative. I don't think it's a negative to, but at the same time, it, it would be a negative to only think of this in that form. Tonight, we want to look at it in the way that Jesus intended. So what, is, what is Jesus trying to teach here? Because this whole section begins with the disciples asking him to teach them to pray. Matthew chapter 6 is right smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount stretches from chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so right in the middle of Jesus' sermon, this rich, rich text this wonderful sermon that theologians and, and scholars have studied for centuries and centuries and centuries, right smack dab in the middle, Jesus is teaching how to pray. That's important. It's amazing. So what's the context here? It would be, it, it's kind of interesting that Jesus felt like he had to teach, teach prayer to a culture that was immersed in prayer. The Jewish culture, the Jewish tradition, you could say they were a praying people. When you look at the Jewish traditions, when you look at the sacred writings, the Old Testament, when you look at Jewish literature, when you look at Jewish poetry, when you look at everything that makes up Jewish culture, it is rich, full of rich treasure of prayer. So the Jewish people have been called a praying people. It is their identity. So it's interesting here that the identity of a people, of prayer, they would come to Jesus and say, teach us how to pray. You see the irony there? Prayer was their identity. 
be about like us as Americans, we're patriots, going to Jesus and say, teach us how to be American patriots. You see the irony there? Prayer was central to the Jewish identity. It's who they were. We see this because the temple was actually called a house of prayer, right? The temple was called a house of prayer. Isaiah chapter 56 uh, says that. And then Jesus, when he cleanses the temple in Luke chapter 19, what was his cry to the people, at, uh, the money changers and all the, the thieves that he was whipping out? I mean, they, he was just whipping them. What did he say? That he was cleansing the temple saying, this is, this is God's house. It is called a house of prayer. Right? And so the temple being central to the Jewish culture occupied this identity of the house of prayer. Furthermore, in Jewish tradition, when the morning and the evening sacrifices were, were done, the morning and evening sacrifices in the temple were always accompanied by prayer. Whenever there was sacrifice going on from the high priest and, and the other priests, when they were... Uh, at, when they were making the sacrifices for the atonement of the sins of the people, there was always a time of prayer. It wasn't just a, a ceremony of, of slaughtering animals for the sake of forgiveness. It was accompanied by prayer. We see that in Luke chapter 1 and Acts chapter 3, if you're taking notes. Lastly, in Jewish tradition, we see in the local synagogues, right? We, we looked at the temple and all of the activities in the temple with sacrifices, but there were local synagogues in the communities uh, all throughout Israel where you could gather in your local community in the synagogue. And that became the model, really, for the local church when, the, when the Christianity came along. The local synagogues, these meeting places, were precisely intended to be places of prayer. Even though we, we see in the Gospels where Jesus read Scripture in the synagogue and then all the men were there listening to the reading of God's Word, it was intended to be a place of prayer. Even if God's Word was being read or being recited or spoken, it was in an attitude of prayer. And then the men would come to the synagogue and, the, and, and even the women and children at times would come and pray there. Right? So prayer was central to the cultural identity. So it's interesting here that if Jesus is teaching how to pray... He's teaching a people who should already know how to pray. So what is he teaching? He's not teaching any particular form, I don't think. I think he's more, instead he's trying to teach an attitude of prayer. I think that's the focus here. So this teaching of the Lord's Prayer that we have in Matthew chapter 6 is only found one other place, and that's in Luke chapter 11. So, I mean, if you want to hold your finger in both places, you can. I'm not going to flip back and forth, but... If, uh, Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11 are the two places where we see this. And Luke's account of the, of the prayer is simpler than Matthew's account. Many, many biblical scholars would think that Luke's account of the prayer is probably more accurate, even though we cannot say that the ancient writers of the Gospels recorded word for word everything Jesus said. And that's one thing that we can, we can take into account. And whenever we're studying Scripture, we have to be careful not to impose our modern understanding of history recording into the Scripture. When, when we record history today, we want to make sure we record history, right? We want to make sure we get every word down. 
Get a, get a transcript, get a recording, get a video. Somebody, a scribe has to write down every single word. That's our intent on making sure we have a record. The ancient mindset of keeping a record was a little bit different. The ancient mindset of keeping record was not focused on accurate word-for-word -word documents. Instead, it was more, we want to record the, the spirit or the intent of the event. And so when Matthew is writing about this, true event, and Luke is writing about this true event. They're writing about Jesus teaching about prayer, not as a record of what he said, as much as a record of the intent or the spirit behind the teaching. Jesus lived out a practice of prayer. Matter of fact, you could argue that prayer was the most consistent theme of his ministry. Everywhere he went, he was teaching, and he was always praying. And it seemed like his disciples, they could never find him because what was he doing? Praying somewhere, right? Now, we look here at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. The, intent, or, or, the intended scene here is that Jesus is up on a mountain somewhere giving this grand teaching, this grand sermon. But when we look in Luke chapter 11, notice how Luke chapter 11 begins, verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, etc. Your kingdom come, give us each day your daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Notice, Jesus was praying in Luke chapter 11. He was in a certain place praying. Now, is it possible that Jesus taught about prayer so many times in his ministry that it was so common, that's why it's recorded? I think so. I don't think Jesus taught this model prayer one time in the Sermon on the Mount. I think we have evidence here, even when you look in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, we, we get the context. He was praying somewhere when he taught there. So I think this is just something that was so, so prevalent in Jesus' ministry, the disciples remembered it and it became so impactful they had to record it in the Gospels. So prayer, again, was part of Jesus' life. It was a consistent theme. So what does this mean here? Let's look, at, let's look at the Matthew account because the Matthew account is the one we're most familiar with. And the Matthew account is one that we can, we can dissect a little bit and, and try to glean some understanding. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, here's how Jesus says to teach, or how to pray. Our Father in heaven. Notice, I want you to notice something here as Jesus begins. What's, that, what's the first word he speaks? Is it a word focused on me, or is it a word focused on our? You see where we're going here? I don't think that's an insignificant thing. I think Jesus did not want prayer to be something about us, me, myself, and I. Is that, what, is that the way we approach God in prayer too often? Can we all be confessing tonight? When I, when I pray, I have to admit, when I'm in, even when I'm in my uh, quiet time of, of, of meditating on Scripture and praying, I have to admit my prayer is always about me. It really is. Dear God, Hear me. Dear God, forgive me. Dear God, listen to me. Dear God, give me. I fall into that all the time. 
And I think uh, I don't think it's very I don't think it's insignificant that Jesus begins this example of our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Now watch the important here. See the opening here reflects Jesus's emphasis in his his approach to God the Father. He comes to God as God is his Father. That is so much of a common theme throughout Jesus's teaching. It was so radically different. That's part of what got him in trouble with the religious leaders. They felt he was a, a heretic because he dared to make God personal. You notice that? And so I think it's important here that Jesus, as in this opening of the prayer, Jesus reflects the emphasis of Abba, Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So in the beginning of this prayer, Jesus is teaching us what is your attitude toward God when you're speaking to Him, when you're coming to God in prayer, what is your attitude about God? What is your mindset about God? Are you thinking of God as Abba? Now, it has often been taught that this word Abba means daddy. I'll just tell you this, some biblical scholars debate that. Yes, it was, a, it was a term of endearment to a father generally spoken by Arabic children because this was an Aramaic, it was an Aramaic phrase, Abba. Abba was an Aramaic term. And yes, it, it does imply an intimacy between a father and a child. But if we look to God in the, in the childish mindset, I'm just a child coming to God like an innocent toddler I think we miss the points. And many biblical scholars, that's what they argue. If we think of Abba just merely as a child's daddy, we're missing the greater emphasis of the term. The term is really more imply of an intimate sonship to a dad, right? I remember when my, my boys were little, right? They, they would call me daddy, but there was a point where they didn't, and then I was just dad. Doesn't mean that that the relationship changed. Actually, I think the relationship matured and we became, we became more intimate together. We became closer together as we grew older together, even as I grew older, right? So the, the emphasis of Abba as a daddy, um, I think, misses the greater point of intimacy. Intimacy. So when we come to God the Father, our Father in heaven, we're coming to Him with intimacy. We're seeing God as an intimate personal relationship, right? Intimacy. We come to God with an, an attitude of intimacy. Not that God is distant from us and we just, we have to come with our petitions like God is up in some kind of a government office or a king on his throne that is so separated from us we can't come near, right? It's not a petition like going to a king or a monarch who's sitting in a palace this is the petitions of coming to a personal, intimate father. That's the first thing that Jesus emphasizes here. That's the first thing he teaches. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the first petition, well, first of all, the opening is our Father who art in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Then... Jesus goes into the first petition. So there's a series of six petitions in this model of prayer. 
You have the opening of our Father in heaven, and the first petition is, hallowed be your name. Now, why, what's the significance of hallowed be your name? Right? What does it mean to be hallowed? It means to be revered, right? It's to acknowledge God's authority. So, not only do you open the prayer with an, an attitude of intimacy, you acknowledge God's authority. You establish the hierarchy in the prayer. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed is your name. When we, when we, when we acknowledge that God's name is, is holy, then what we're doing is that we are we're acknowledging the significance of God's personal name. And why is this important? Because in the ancient world, a person's name was significant. Whenever you acknowledged someone, the ancient world saw the significance of that person's name. When you acknowledge their name, you acknowledge their identity. You also acknowledge their place. And by acknowledging that God whose name is holy, we're saying, dear God, first of all, we acknowledge you, but may your name be sanctified. May your name be holy. We're acknowledging him as a personal connection. And in so doing, in the ancient world, when you saw the significance of a person's name, especially someone in authority, by doing so, you actually placed yourself under their protection and their command. So if you came to someone of authority in the ancient world, you would address them by who they were, acknowledging their great name, and by doing so, it was understood you were then acknowledging their authority, their hierarchy above you, and your place below them. See what we're doing? So when we open up prayer with God, it is both an intimate acknowledgement of Father, but also acknowledging that, dear God, you are in authority. I'm acknowledging how holy you are. I'm acknowledging how unholy I am. That's also implied, isn't it? It's not spelled out directly, but the implication here of our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, is I'm not holy. My name is nothing compared to yours. You see the implication there? Wow. It establishes the relationship by establishing the hierarchy. Now, the second petition, beginning in verse 10, your kingdom come. May your kingdom come. Now, this also is, is establishing God's authority in the prayer. And what was God's authority as king, right? Uh, what did Jesus declare in Mark chapter 1, verse 15? That the kingdom of God is at hand, right? By acknowledging God's kingdom, by saying, Dear God, may your kingdom be established. Your kingdom come. Come where? May your kingdom come here. May your kingdom come to me. May your kingdom come in and around me. May your kingdom come. Acknowledging God's authority and acknowledging his kingdom is the second petition. And attached to that is the third step, the third petition. Your kingdom come, your will be done. 
Think about this. If you are established or if you're acknowledged as the king, where the king rules, the king's will is done. That's part of the kingdom. That's part of the ruling, right? Where God's rule is acknowledged, God's will is done. So in our prayers, by acknowledging his kingdom, we're acknowledging that his will will be done, will be accomplished. We're acknowledging that. Because if we do not acknowledge his rule, God's will has no place in our lives. Can we say amen to that? Those who do not acknowledge God's authority in their lives, God's will is not played out. Other than condemnation, which is already established in the fall of sin. Right? So, the thing about here, look, look at verse 10 as well. There is a, a, an implied tension here between two kingdoms. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done, Where? On earth as it is in heaven. That is a common theme throughout Scripture, throughout all of Christian life. There is this implied tension constantly between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of man. Isn't there? Can we say that in our own lives? There is this constant war and tension between um, our, our sinful self and our new spirit in Christ are they constantly at tug of wars with each other? It is the same thing here between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. Uh, St. Augustine's uh, classic work called The City of God explores this. It is, an, it is a classic in Christian uh, teachings and literature. This, Augustine contrasts the city of God with the city of man and explores that timeless, eternal battle between two kingdoms that we are stuck in the middle of <laughs> because Adam and Eve acknowledged the kingdom of earth, the kingdom of man, and ignored the kingdom of God. Wow. Constant battle. Now, the fourth petition, verse 11. Jesus now goes into acknowledging the practical. So the fourth petition is a practical petition to, uh, in prayer. Give us this day what? Our daily bread. Now, we spoiled, fat Americans, and I include myself in that. I am fat. Um, we don't have to worry about our daily bread, do we? Can we say, I mean, that's a blessing. We don't really have to worry about our daily bread as many around the world do. We do have many in our community who do struggle with food, but food is available here. We have so much food, we throw it away. Food is available. So it's difficult for us to grasp this concept of depending on God for our daily needs. How many people have a storehouse of food in their house that you could probably eat for two months and not, not lose a pound? <laughs> I, think we, I think we probably have about six months' worth of food stored up. And if, if, uh, if the apocalypse were to come, I think we would be all right for a while. <laughs> right? Um, it's difficult for us to grasp, I think, what does it mean to depend on your daily bread. But what, I mean, what is Jesus teaching here? He's actually teaching dependence. So in, in our prayer, not only do we acknowledge God and who He is and His holiness, we acknowledge His will be done and His kingdom come, we then petition by acknowledging that we are dependent upon God for our daily needs. 
That is an act of humility that many uh, American Christians, I think, could learn from. Practicing dependence upon God, intentionally saying, Dear God, I really depend on you and meaning it. I mean, I need you for everything to survive. Now, the, thing, the idea of bread in, in all throughout Scripture implies life. Bread equals substance. And substance equals being. Without bread, we don't exist. Without bread, there is no essence within us. There is no, no substance to us. And without that, there is no being. So, we, so really, this petition in verse 11, Dear God, give us this day our daily bread, is a petition of existence. Do y'all realize, I want you to soak in that idea for a minute. Do you realize that your very being, your very existence is in God's hands? He he gives you your next breath. (laughs) He gives you your next awareness. The fact that we have consciousness, that's, that's a deep thought though. Think about your consciousness, your awareness that you are. comes directly from God. That's what I think verse 11 is implying here. Give us our daily bread, dependent upon God for everything. Not just our three meals and six snacks every day. Our first breakfast, second breakfast, third breakfast, lunch, afternoon lunch, late afternoon lunch, early dinner, supper, and then a couple of bedtime snacks. How about depending on God for all that we have, all that we need to exist, all that we need to be? That's what "Give us our daily bread" really t- talks about. And the next one, the fifth petition, verse twelve. And now here's the doozy. Here's the one that's difficult. I wish Jesus could have just said, "Dear God, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins," and left it at that. Right? What does Jesus teach? Verse twelve. And forgive us our debts, or like the uh, Luke translate, or the Luke uh, translation says in Luke chapter eleven verse four, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And then the Matthew version, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors or trespasses. Why did Jesus have to put a condition on it? Why does Jesus have to put a condition on forgiveness? You ever pondered that? When when I'm looking here at verse 12, I'm going, come on, Jesus. You mean there's conditions to forgiveness? In the prayer, I think in the prayer that Jesus is teaching, he's making a pretty direct point, right? The petition to God to forgive our sins. Dear God, forgive our sins as we also forgive others. Now, wait a minute. What if we don't forgive? Doesn't Jesus teach this pretty regularly? If you do not forgive your enemies, God will not forgive you. So, the fifth petition here in verse 12 talks about not just simply forgiveness, but talks about the measure of forgiveness. So, Jesus wants us in our prayers, as we are praying, to consider and ponder the measure of forgiveness. What is required for forgiveness? Number one, we can't forgive ourselves. Now, we can forgive others, and God forgives us. But there is uh, an interdependence here. I think that's the point of verse 12. Jesus is teaching us through prayer 
we can understand the interdependence of divine forgiveness with human forgiveness. It is impossible for us to forgive others if we do not know how God himself forgives. Likewise, God has the right, as we've already established in the previous verses of the prayer, he is father, he is king, he has authority. He can forgive if he wishes, he cannot forgive if he wishes. There is no guarantee of God's forgiveness. The only guarantee is if we are in Christ, that the, our sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ. That's the only hope of our forgiveness. And so there, the forgiveness, regardless, is always dependent upon. It's a, it's a further petition of dependence. Dependence not only on God for our daily bread, but dependence on God for our state of salvation and forgiveness. Acknowledging His authority there in prayer. Wow. Lastly, in verse 13, this is the sixth petition. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and power and glory forever and ever. Amen. Which is not in the text. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's, that's a tough one there, right? What does it mean to be tempted? The prayer here is to act. Jesus is saying, go to God the Father and pray this. Lead us not into temptation. Dear God, please do not lead us into temptation. Now, here's the does that mean, does that imply that God brings temptation? I think that, that would be a stretch to try to interpret this that way. Because we understand through much of the New Testament that God allows temptation. He allows the test. And that's not just a New Testament thing. That is a common theme throughout all of Scripture from Genesis all the way through the New Testament. In Genesis chapter 22, Exodus 15, Numbers 14, all throughout uh, the historical books and even the minor, pro the minor prophets of the Old Testament, that's pretty much the common theme. God is going to allow temptation because He's going to allow your enemies to come and punish you. In the book of Job. I mean, it's a common theme throughout Scripture, so God does allow temptation. And what is temptation? You could translate temptation literally as a testing. God allows tests. God allows tests. And what is God testing? He is testing our faithfulness. Right? I know of married couples that do that. They want to test the faithfulness of their spouse. Now, some of, the, some of the married couples are looking at each other. Do you do that to me? Do you? <laughs> can, we be, can we be honest here? Sometimes in a relationship, especially when you're dating, trying to figure out if you can marry this person, is there maybe some subtle little test to whether or not they pass the faithfulness test? God does that throughout. He, he's, we, see the, we see it in scriptures. God does that with his people. He will allow tests to see how strong the faithfulness is. Faithfulness is actually demonstrated through trials and temptations. We see that in Scripture. So why is Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, teaching us to pray, God, and lead us not into temptation? Is Jesus contradicting God's habit in Scripture? I don't think so. 
What is Jesus teaching us here in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13? He's teaching us what it means uh, to not be in a position before God to where He would have to test your faith. Pray, dear God, put me in a place where you don't have to test my faithfulness. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, Jesus promises trials all the time. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, all, the theme of all of First and Second Peter is that the, uh, the exiled Christians, the diaspora of Christians, were going to, uh, their faith was going to be tested through t- trials to, to see who had genuine faith. You remember that? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Go back and read that. So what are we trying to figure out here? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think this is a, a plea to God. It's a continuation of the acknowledgement of back uh, when I told you in verse 9, when we acknowledge a, a, someone of authority, when we acknowledge their name, when we acknowledge the significance of God's holiness, that is an ancient tradition of signifying them and placing oneself under their protection. So in verse 9, when we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we are, in, we are at the same time placing ourselves under God's protection. So therefore, by verse 13, now we get to, Dear God, please protect us. Please don't, please don't think ill of me and have to test my faith. And protect us from evil, but deliver us from evil. Now... Here is in verse 13, uh, at the end of verse 13, here's where many biblical scholars are still debating back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I think it's a a hair to split, but it's something to think about. The actual Greek here should be translated, but deliver us from the evil one, rather than just mere evil. The implication here in the Greek um, and, you know, historical grammatical criticism has a pretty strong argument here that I won't bore you with the details, but the, the, the Greek there is actually an adjective describing someone rather than a, uh, an idea like evil. So it's more of an adjective that you would describe a person with. So therefore, some, are, some scholars say the proper translation is, but deliver us from the evil one. Protect us from the enemy. Protect us from Satan. Protect us from the evil one. Because the evil one is the one who's going to tempt us. Isn't, isn't that the role of Satan, the tempter? Right. So, dear God, protect us as the father and the king and the monarch of authority that we acknowledge that you are. And dear God, please lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one who tempts us. Wow. That's an acknowledgement of the constant tension between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. So what is Jesus teaching here? How can we understand this? Jesus' model prayer here, again, is not a prayer that we should recite or else. Now, again, I love it that we can memorize the And we should teach these to our children. We should teach the children the Lord's Prayer. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with teaching memorized prayers. I've got books on my bookshelf of Puritan prayers. Beautiful, rich poetry. Beautiful stuff. The book, of, the book of Psalms is full of David's prayers. When you look at, um, when you look at Jeremiah, just read Jeremiah. 
He's praying to God all the time. <laughs> Much of Jeremiah's prophecy is literally God speaking through him, but then also Jeremiah praying to God. We have accounts of Moses' prayer. We have accounts of Mary's prayer that we read at Christmas time. I think the focus what Jesus is teaching us here in his model prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. He's trying to teach us to have the right attitude in prayer. What's the right attitude? The right attitude is acknowledge God for who he is. And pray with an attitude, a genuine honesty toward him of who he is. He is Father, highest of authority that I depend upon, who gives me what I need and forgives me when I need it and protects me from the evil one and guards me from temptation. If we acknowledge that toward him, then we acknowledge our state before him. We are who we are. We are nothing compared to God. We are dependent on him. We, we're not less than and not worthy, even though we are not worthy. We're worthy enough for God to love us enough to teach us how to love him. But our attitudes of prayer should not be about me. Our attitudes of prayer should be about God. I think that's what Jesus is trying to teach us here. Agreed? Because we, we want to pray for us. Dear God, forgive me. Dear God, give me. Dear God, protect me. Rather than acknowledging, dear God, you can. You are the one that I depend on. You are the one who forgives me. Dear God, you are the one that protects me. Maybe the attitude of prayer should be, dear God, you are the one who forgives me. Thank you. Dear God, you are the one that gives me all I need. Thank you rather than gimme, gimme, gimme. I think that's really what Jesus is trying to teach. Amen. Because if we trust God to answer the prayer, we don't have to beg. He wants us to come to Him. We act, I mean, Jesus even teaches those, you must come to God and ask, seek, and knock. Yes, petitionary, that's what petitionary prayer is. We petition God. But I think what Jesus is teaching us is acknowledge God's authority. Acknowledge His holiness. Acknowledge His, uh, his here's a theological word, His omniscience, His omnipresence. All of those things. All of these things that human language cannot acknowledge. He's beyond even that. Wow. Amen.